You're listening to a Cyberwire podcast from N2K Networks, powered by Dragos. It's January 24th, 2024, and you're listening to Control Loop. In today's OT cybersecurity briefing, an analysis of cyber attacks against Danish energy infrastructure, the U.S. government outlines threats posed by Chinese manufactured drones, vulnerability in Bosch thermostats, IOG says CISA needs to improve collaboration with the water sector, our guests Mark Stacy of Dragos and Charles Cano from Westcap Discuss cyber insurance as an important part of your organization's security plans. The Learning Lab features Mark Urban and Drago Strategic Accounts Director Sam Van Ryder talking about building community in OT. report from the U.S. Department of Homeland Security's Office of Inspector General asserts that the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, needs to improve its collaboration with entities in the water sector, NextGov reports. The OIG states that although CISA had extensive products and services to manage risks and mitigate cybersecurity threats to critical water and wastewater infrastructure and increase its resiliency, the agency did not consistently collaborate with the Environmental Protection Agency and the water and wastewater systems sector to leverage and integrate its cybersecurity expertise with stakeholders' water expertise. The report adds, This occurred because CISA did not have a memorandum of understanding with the Environmental Protection Agency documenting roles, responsibilities, and collaboration mechanisms. CISA also lacked policies and procedures regarding collaboration with the Environmental Protection Agency and other external stakeholders. CISA agreed with the OIG's recommendations and has provided a timeline for its plans to improve collaboration with the water industry, the record reports. Last week, the agency issued a joint report with the EPA and the FBI outlining best practices for cyber incident response in the water and wastewater sector. Researchers at Security Scorecard warn that the suspected Chinese state-sponsored threat actor Volt Typhoon is targeting vulnerabilities affecting end-of-life Cisco RV320 and RV325 routers, dark reading reports. The threat actor may have compromised up to 30% of routers that are part of a botnet and is using the devices as command and control servers in attacks against high-value targets. Targeted entities include assets owned by the U.S., U.K., and Australian governments. The Cyber Express reports that the anonymous Sudan hacker gang has claimed credit for cyber attacks against two Israeli ports. The group says it hit the port's network devices, network administration devices, routers, SNMP and email servers, VPN, internal servers, and critical client-side endpoints. The gang's claims are unverified, but the Cyber Express observed that one of the port's websites was offline at the time of publication. 
While Anonymous Sudan claims to be a hacktivist group based in Sudan, Cloudflare notes that this may be an attempt at misdirection. There are some indications that the group is based in or is operating on behalf of Russia. Forescout has published an analysis of two waves of cyber attacks that hit Denmark's energy sector in May of 2023, while the Danish CERT for critical infrastructure, Sector CERT, attributes the incidents to Russia's sandworm threat actor, Forescout thinks the evidence for this is lacking. The researchers write, Evidence suggests that the two waves of attacks on Danish infrastructure reported by Sector CERT were unrelated. It also suggests that the second wave was simply part of a mass exploitation campaign against unpatched firewalls not part of a targeted attack by Sandworm or another state-sponsored actor. Our data reveals that the campaign described as the second wave of attacks on Denmark started before and continued after the period reported by Sector CERT, targeting firewalls indiscriminately in a very similar manner, only changing staging servers periodically. We see a prevalence of exploitation attempts in Europe where nearly 80% of publicly identifiable and potentially vulnerable firewalls are located. CISA and the FBI have published a joint report outlining the threats Chinese-manufactured drones pose to U.S. critical infrastructure. The report warns that giving network access to such drones may result in exposing intellectual property to Chinese companies and jeopardizing an organization's competitive advantage— It may result in providing enhanced details of critical infrastructure operations and vulnerabilities, increasing the PRC's capability to disrupt critical services. Additionally, it could result in compromising cybersecurity and physical security controls, leading to potential physical effects such as theft or sabotage of critical assets. And it could result in exposing network access details that enhance the PRC's capability to conduct cyber attacks on critical infrastructure. Bitdefender has identified a high-severity vulnerability in Bosch smart thermostats that can allow attackers to send commands to the thermostat and replace its firmware. The flaw in the unit's Wi-Fi microcontroller, which acts as a network gateway for the thermostat's logic microcontroller. The vulnerability enables malicious commands to be sent to the thermostat, indistinguishable from legitimate cloud server commands. We'd love to know what you think of this podcast and what you'd like to hear more about. Please take a few minutes to submit the survey in the show notes. Your feedback ensures we deliver the information that keeps you a step ahead in the rapidly changing operational technology industry. Next up, a conversation with Mark Stacy of Dragos and Charles Cano from Westcap discussing cyber insurance as an important part of your organization's security plan. Cyber insurance is ever changing. 15 years ago, I remember attending a conference and, and it was kind of everyone's first attempt to try to tackle the cyber insurance industry. And I don't think anyone has yet. And so I think it's ever changing. Anybody who says they have cyber and understand how cyber works uh, is not telling the truth. It's ever-evolving.
I know we're 15 years into cyber insurance, but we are still learning. That's that's the honest truth. <laughs> what are some of the specific challenges that the industry faces here to to try to reach an equilibrium? Yeah, I think it's really having useful um, data. That's really the key point. Uh, a lot of uh, cyber insurance companies have tried to use models that they would use for other types of policies like like property. Um, and, and that hasn't worked. They've tried to use uh, models that they used for, like, example, professional liability. And again, those models haven't worked. And so I think that's what they're trying to do is I think everyone's going back and trying to rewrite the model. And so useful data is something that's really, really important. And no one likes to have claims, but quite honestly, they need more claims data. So that, that's another issue that matters right now. And then the other component of that is they need help in the industry. So, you know, they are forced to take on a lot of risk that they probably don't have their 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 hands around right now. And I think a lot of them were hoping that, you know, regulatory bodies would step in and, and give them some some cover, but that's not happening. So government isn't really getting involved. And so they've been forced to take on some risk they they haven't liked. And so now they need help. And so, you know, that's where they start looking to to either other industries for what solutions they've used or they're looking to industry partners, um, vendor partners to help them kind of come up with solutions to help protect, you know, their bottom line. Mark, I'm curious for your insights here. I mean, with the folks that, that you interact with, the customers who work with you at Dragos, what are you seeing in terms of their approach to engaging with protecting themselves through insurance? From the customer point of view or the insurance carriers? Well, let's start with the customers. The key from what we've seen from customers, uh, and it's really focused on what is the most uh, economical, expedited method of response. And response including containment, eradication, and really return to service. And when we hear of the big complicated incident response cases, generally we focus on the technical forensic capability the practitioners to come in and do the actual uh, incidents triage. And really, for a lot of the incidents that we're talking about, especially in OT, the impact extends far past data and information loss. And so we need to include external communications, uh, legal representation and counsel, as well as insurance carriers. And so the incident response team doesn't just comprise the subject matter experts. It needs to include those other business support functions that are really a, a necessity for business continuity. And ideally, as a customer, what they want is those different teams brought in to have some rapport. It can be a formal business relationship or informal, but some understanding of each role in the incident response process. And if they establish some rapport prior to the incident response, everything runs smoother. You know, communication is so critical and minutes matter that if each organization understands, uh, again, their role in it and they can communicate effectively to the other business partners, it's really beneficial for the uh, customer in general. Charles, does that align with your experience as well? Yeah, it does completely. Uh, you know, right now, I would say that there's a current reliance in the insurance world on using um, IT providers to to solve OT-related problems. And so IT teams, while they can get the task done, 
Um, the biggest differentiator is time. And in the incident response world, time equals money. Based on the feedback we're getting from um, brokers and carriers, kind of the difference is between IT incident response and OT incident response, um, and that time is significant. So our anecdotal evidence tells us that um, OT-dedicated IR can make initial assessments and take steps to remedy cyber incidents within hours. IT-focused incident response team often take days to get to that same place. So an example of this is, you know, the situational expertise that comes with OT. IT incident response, team, response teams typically work remotely, um, so they're not used to or prepared or even sometimes certified to go on-site. And this requires them to kind of hire third-party OT teams to help them in their journey, where OT teams can get the same work done adding time uh, without adding the time and expense related because they are prepared, they are certified to work on-site, where, like I said, most IT incident response teams work remotely. So, yeah, I, I think that's right in line with what Mark is saying. Mark, I mean, to dig into some of that, in terms of the preparation that an organization should take thinking about an event that could happen in the future. I mean, it it sounds to me like this sort of planning is really critical. Are, are we talking about things like tabletop exercises? I mean, what, what are the best practices here? Yeah, certainly we recommend not just creating an IRP, an incident response plan, but testing it. And in working through this with multiple customers, we see that, again, a lot of those other support functions, they're written in to the incident response plan. But when you go through a test, it may say, okay, at this point, we engage, say, external communications. And no one from that team is in the room. Or at this point, the decision, uh, as Charles mentioned, every decision that's made in a high-stress situation, it needs to balance cost, time, and effectiveness. And maybe the person who can gauge cost or time is not in the room. And so going through the exercises where you really identify areas of improvement and efficiencies that could be made. So absolutely have an incident response plan, but until you know whether or not it will really be effective for the incident, you need to do some test. Charles, I'm I'm curious for your perspective when we're talking about operational technology. I mean, we've certainly seen a lot of attention on that these days. And I'm curious for folks in the insurance industry who are supporting organizations with OT, can you give us some insights as to, to how that works? I mean, where where does it sit relative to the IT side of things and how are providers approaching it? Yeah, I would say that most carriers are just now coming to the reality that there is a difference between IT and OT. Uh, spent some time recently in London working with some of the major insurance carriers, and a lot of them were um, not even aware that there was a difference. And when they do realize there's a difference, they automatically want that for their customers. So I would say right now that's been the biggest thing is really helping those carriers understand that the OT teams are different, how they're different, and how they can really you know, equal success for their clients. When the carriers are looking at these sorts of things, what are their concerns? What, what are some of the challenges they face in this particular vertical? Yeah, so I think the two things, their main primary concerns today are kind of useful data to underwrite. I, I mentioned before that a lot of them are trying to use old models. And so there continues to be a lack of reliable data to underwrite um, specific risks that clients are asking for now. So this means that things like threat intel feeds that are coming um, from clients, but via their cybersecurity service providers is really gold, um, especially when the data is for specialized incidents and claims like those that occurred in an OT environment. Um, the second thing I would say is that for insurance carriers, um, 
expenses prior to a cyber incident like um, sales, marketing, broker commissions, and client services, they're kind of a fixed cost for them. But what they indicated to us is expenses after an incident are more like an open checkbook. And so that's a problem for them. So post-incident expenses are why most carriers aren't profitable. And when coupled with the unreliable underwriting data um, that we already discussed, it, it creates a, a little bit of a conundrum for them. So cyber carriers are looking for industry expertise to accurately predict or at minimum reduce the cost after the incident. And so they're creating panels of cyber industry experts uh, to limit time and expenses associated with their clients' risk profiles. So that's where they're really you know, starting to tap people with the OT expertise to, to help reduce those costs. It strikes me, and Mark, I'm curious for your take on this, that, that we've seen a lot of influence from these carriers in terms of uh, getting the organizations to adopt better practices in their day-to-day. And, you know, saying to them, if you want coverage and you want it to be reasonably priced, you're going to need to implement these things. Is that your experience? I certainly have confidence that the entire industry you know, the carriers, uh, brokers, insurance providers, the customers, and security vendors, we all share a common goal. And that's improving the security, you know, protection, detection, and incident response capabilities, as well as the resilience of these networks. Insurance carriers are great at insurance. Security vendors are great at providing and enabling security. And so not trying to masquerade the other's area of expertise, but rather leverage those relationships to help the customer improve, it really benefits everyone. And so I think really doing the best thing for the community, uh, especially, you know, an incident response, there can be no pride. Each team comes in to add their, their subject matter expertise. Each team, if it's uh, IT, insurance, OT, extending even to original equipment manufacturers, OEMs, and vendors. Everybody is an additive. Everybody complements the total effort. And again, the, the goal is shared to return the client to a stable state and do it as efficiently and economically as possible. What I would say is, you know, er- earlier, you know, you previously asked me, you know, kind of where cyber insurance is now. And, you know, I, I kind of painted a bleak picture and made it sound like maybe there isn't uh, isn't a plan moving forward. I would say, you know, like I said, I think the industry would like to to be further along than they are. But what they are doing right now is they're they're trying to focus. So, you know, re- as of recently, there's been an increased demand for like specialized coverages and industry specific solutions. So carriers have moved away from a, a one size fits all cyber policy to to limit some of their exposures. Um, again, because they haven't been profitable. And at the same time, they're adding specific coverage offerings um, for things like business interruption, uh, reputational damage, regulatory fines, things that actually matter to the policyholders. So that reduced some of their cost. And then they're adding things like physical damage that traditionally was a property cover. It's now included in some cyber policies because of the exposure created by interactions with operational technology. So I would say also that, you know, kind of things in the past adding certain controls um, or service providers would mean that you would see a reduction in premium. But uh, those days are gone. And those days are are behind us as cyber insurance companies continue to, to not be profitable. Today, having good controls and good service provider teams is kind of the minimum requirement for insurability now. You know, you bring up a really interesting point, Charles. And, and I'm curious about what you're seeing in terms of volatility in the market. And in other words, are there 
Are there organizations who've been with a particular insurance company for a long time, you have a, a long established relationship, but they're finding that they have to do some looking around now because maybe that provider no longer fits all of their needs and they want to try to get all of their needs fit by one organization. It, it, is there any uh, reality there? There is. A client may have, you know, let's say been with an, uh, an insurance company for a long time and, you know, they, they had a great relationship for their property or their general liability coverage. And so then they would also buy their cyber insurance from them. And what we're finding is, again, those traditional insurance companies can't meet their needs and they don't want the additional exposure where before they wanted to kind of round out their entire book of business. And so we're actually seeing some carriers kind of uh, step away from the market. Uh, and we're finding more, like I mentioned, specialized carriers who are, are taking their place. And so uh, it is allowing uh, these companies to create new relationships with uh, s- some additional insurance companies. So I think it's there's some right sizing that's happening um, where we're matching uh, exposures of the companies with with carriers who are willing to take on that risk. I think part of the the market volatility with insurance right now, as we look at OT, it's also kind of exasperated. And the fact that these networks are largely unknown. So when we talk about IT networks, generally, we've got security controls and, you know, a a great recorded history of what is on the network. And with OT, we don't have that. Mm. Uh, We've been talking it in industry for a long time on how OT networks have old uh, information systems. Maybe they're no longer supported. Maybe the company that made it is no longer in business. And so identifying what comprises the network is very, very difficult. Part of insurance and those carriers understanding what good risk is and doing proper assessments with accuracy is knowing what capabilities is on the network, where the crown jewels are, what the impact could be. And that's something that a lot of the network owners can't even identify. And so when we look at the maturity of the industry, it's identifying first what they're trying to protect what the impact could be, we have to help the owners understand that before we can even begin to communicate and share that with the insurance industry, which can then make appropriate policies that are lucrative for them or or advantageous for them, as well as enable the customer. Hmm. Mark, is it fair to say that a lot of these facilities are are essentially one-offs? What I would say is their OT technology can be unique, but the implementation of it can further that uniqueness. And so how an oil refinery works in one state may be completely different than another oil refinery using the exact same vendors in a different state. And so because of that implementation nuance you have, you have to dig into some of the details. You have to have some visibility over the network to not just see what's on it, but what contingencies there are, what protocols are being used, how they're implemented, and really the cross-functional dependencies you have across it. Mark, how much collaboration is appropriate when um, purchasing an insurance policy? I mean, specifically what I'm thinking is, you know, should my cybersecurity provider have a seat at the table when I'm talking to my insurance provider? Uh, That's a great question. I think, candidly, if I were a system owner. I would not want my security vendor there. Uh, I would leverage them to advocate to my broker or my carrier for a better rate based on the capabilities that I matured. 
But I think that relationship is hand in hand. It makes sense that if you have improved security posture, you have done a better job of managing the risk, and you certainly want to share that with your insurance provider. Charles, any insights there? I would agree um, that you know you would want to be able to use their expertise and their uh, reputation to help you in in representing yourself to an insurance carrier, but I, I wouldn't necessarily have them at the table unless there is something so unique that they are doing for you that it would make a difference to an underwriter. Um, and I, the reason I say that is because most of the insurance carriers have their own panels with their own um, cybersecurity you know partners there. And, and so unless they match up or, or something like that, it could be sometimes seen as a conflict or maybe that the maybe who you're using isn't as good as their panel. So I would keep them apart. I would, like I said, definitely leverage their, their reputation to help you in terms of, of what you are specifically doing for your risk profile. But I, I, I wouldn't necessarily have them at the table with me now. Mm. You know, we've talked about um, incident response here and, and, and pre-planning. And I'm curious... When an incident happens, and I think we see a lot of incidents beginning on the IT side of things, how do we deal with overlap between the different responders, between the folks on the IT team, on the OT team, and uh, you know other security staff, or, or even the vendors who might come into play here? Do you have any guidance there? Mark, let me start with you. Again, we can have no pride during incident response, and silos are counterproductive to the entire effort. We being Dragos have partnered with multiple IT firms. And those IT firms know that when they're doing triage in an incident and it extends into OT, they call us. Again, we have the shared goal of the most rapid response possible to return the customer to a stable operating state, some return to service. Similar if the incident starts in OT and during our triage, we see it extends into OT or into IT, excuse me, or another vendor. We have an extensive uh, partnership with OEMs and other vendors we can rely on. Those relationships with IT are bilateral. We reach out to them, they reach out to us, and we all work collaboratively to really get the customer uh, returned to that stable state. Well, I would add to that that having a plan in place beforehand is really helpful. So, you know, if, if a company like Dragos is, is working with an IT team, knowing their clients ahead of time is really useful. Um, you know, I kind of gave that kind of situation where an IT team will realize quickly that, oh, we don't have the certifications we need to be on site for an incident. Um, and having a relationship with an OT provider is really, really useful because it cuts down that time and expense. If I'm guiding a client in this type of a situation, what I'm telling them is, hey, it looks like you have uh, a kind of an OT exposure here. Let's make sure that you have an OT provider selected and that they're already approved um, by your insurance panel so that uh, uh, if something does happen, it's one phone call versus, you know, 30 phone calls to try to find the right person to, uh, to show up on site. Again, we're trying to reduce time because time equals money in that incident response world. Yeah. You know, Charles, I'm curious where you think we are headed with this. When, when you look towards the horizon, where, where do you see this uh, being in the next few years? Uh, I, I think it's going to keep moving towards specialization. So I think we're going to get, you know, we're seeing a lot of the carriers understand that there are specialized solutions for their panels. They used to go and hire kind of generalists. And while there's a place for kind of those general groups, time is money. And so I think we're going to find that insurance carriers are going to get more and more focused on solutions that 
match their exposures. And uh, again, the market is demanding that the cyber policies, you know, get more specific around what uh, they're trying to cover rather than be a general solution. So I think we're going to find specialization is the way that insurance carriers find profitability, but also how they help their clients is, is moving towards specialized solutions for specialized risk exposures. One quick addition, I having talked to multiple different carriers, as Charles mentioned, the uh, old approach of a panel of generalists or approved security vendors, we've seen that kind of mature as we did with IT several years ago, where insurance is actively hiring very technical staff with OT expertise. The relationship that I've seen between carriers and their customers is one of continued partnership. They want to help the client continuously mature. It provides the insurance with better risk assessment and it provides the customer with better resiliency. And so they're looking to understand the OT environment, understand what matters and how to navigate some of those risk assessments, whether it be internal or through consulting with their customers. Our thanks to Mark Stacy from Dragos and Charles Cano from Westcap for joining us. On today's Learning Lab, Mark Urban is joined by Drago Strategic Accounts Director Sam Van Ryder to discuss building community in OT. Here's their conversation. Hi, I'm Mark Urban again with the Learning Lab. Today we're going to talk a little bit about community building in the cyber world, uh, specifically for critical infrastructure. I've been in cyber for a long time, uh, years with uh, Blue Coat and Symantec, you know, big IT cybersecurity. And when I came to Dragos and started focusing on OT, I think I made the assumption that a lot of people do is like, okay, there's, you know, it's the same thing. It's just, you know, slightly different focus. And I got my eyes open over the last two years. And two of the differences that are most stark to me is one, the difference in the environments. I mean, securing laptops and servers and point-of-sale stuff in IT is one thing. Pipelines, electrical grids, manufacturing floors are a whole different sort of thing. So that's one thing that struck me. Two is just how far behind OT security is. It's like the last frontier of cybersecurity because of how little of it there is. And because it's so different and because it's so far behind, there are a lot fewer skilled people uh, in OT cybersecurity. So uh, you see how important kind of building up that community is. And uh, I'm joined today by Sam Van Ryder, who is a strategic account advisor here at Dragos. And we met at DISC, the Dragos Industrial Security Conference, in uh, just just about a month ago, two months ago. And I started talking about, because I've been following Sam on what he does on HughesecCon and a lot of the community building he does there. And so we're joined by Sam Van Ryder. Thanks for joining us, Sam. Oh, thanks for having me. I wonder if we could start, just give me a little bit about your background. We both work at Dragos. We're both focused on OT cybersecurity. And, you know, but everybody that I talk to has a different journey. So I want to give the audience a little benefit of uh, your background. Sure, sure. 
So I, uh, many years ago, um, and is uh, I started out as a mechanical engineer, and uh, I went that path for s- several years uh, in different industries, starting in aircraft. I did some robotic tooling. I did orthopedic design. I did all kinds of different things just to kind of try different aspects of the discipline of mechanical engineering and things you could do. And during that process, I became uh, what I call a CAD jockey. So I was really good at computer-aided design and computer-aided engineering, which kind of accidentally put me in a uh, sales engineering role. Um, So, and and that's where I kind of got my flavor of the different, you know, working different problems with different customers all the time and ended up into sales, which uh, as I moved back to the States, because I started back in Europe, I got into the same spot, but then quickly uh, went to a startup uh, that did some uh, service level analysis and things like that. And that put me into the whole network aspect of things we were acquired by NetScout. And that's where I got my taste of security. Not that NetScout was doing security at the time, but I saw the behavior aspects of attacks on a network. And and, I'm, and for me, that was just a light bulb that went off. I call it coming full circle. A few years later, um, I was at a consulting company and we ended up uh, having a customer that had a compromise that basically flat network compromised the entire uh, organization and this company did chemicals. Uh, there was a risk of, in this particular case with this APT, of the APT not being targeted, but if they hit the wrong buttons, they could release a cloud of chlorine gas into uh, the neighborhood n- nearby. Uh, in Houston, we don't have zoning, so that's a problem. For me, that that was an aha moment that brought me back to the OT side where I you know, understood kind of the control systems and stuff from my days in automation and, and engineering and things like that. Gotcha. So yes, it's best not to have clouds of chlorine gas pouring across your neighborhood, which is a great example of, you know, the difference in impacts with operational technology. And if something goes wrong from a cyber perspective, they have impacts to safety, to environment, and yes, to the bottom line as well. But uh, we all prefer not to have that happen in our community, which is why we talked about there's a, a shortage of skills and understanding. And the reason that I want to have this discussion is because you're focused. Uh, tell us a little bit about HUSECON, which is, you know, the Houston area. You know, you work with customers to, to sort through their issues in cyber on OT. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so HUSICON uh, was really an effort that was born. It wasn't unintentional, but the growth was. Um and this is where a regional conference we were started uh, close to 14, 15 years ago. Uh, Farnham, Michael Farnham, a good friend of mine, and I started working on this. And the fir- very first one was in Microsoft actually has a local office. They gave us their office space there to do a little conference. We had about 100 people the first year. That has grown since into um, our last year was 1,400 people um, at a, the Marriott Marquis downtown Houston. Uh, and it's really grown to become like the biggest cyber conference in the region. So we're one of the regional areas. And through that journey of, of many years of doing this, I've added uh, the OT element to it. The whole idea behind uh, HUSICON has always been uh, to build the community. Our tagline is learn and defend. Um, so, you know, everything that we're trying to do is, is, you know, we're nonprofit. We are total volunteer driven. We actually hired our first time employee last year, uh, only about four or five months ago because we saw how big this was getting and we needed better help and something to drive our attention throughout the year. 
Um, but it's really turned into a community driven effort. So I have all kinds of great volunteers that step up and help every year. Um, but it's also lots of great speakers and content that uh, offer their time and, and their knowledge and, and share it with the community. And it's a great opportunity to network. And these, conf- these regional conferences are great for that. So if you look at, you know, in, in the Houston area, because it's not just Houston, you do another, a number of other activities. Talk, talk about how you view community building, uh, especially on the OT side. Like what, uh, you mentioned some of the goals. You want to be able to be network, build your skills. But tell us a little bit about, besides the annual conference, how you view the OT community in Houston and, you know, some of the advances it's made, some of the things that, you know, that you'd like to see happen. Yeah, so the OT is prevalent. And first off, OT is, is what we kind of use on the cyber side to describe uh, the process engineering and physical aspects, uh, physical systems, cyber systems. But um, the reality is if you're a process engineer or, or uh, an industrial engineer, you don't really talk about OT per se. So it's kind of our own nomenclature, but kind of like, well, we all fought the cyber term 10, 15 years ago, we're there. <laughs> so let's not fight it. It's good to use it. But Houston is the energy capital, arguably, of the world. And so we have a lot of systems. You go out, you know, east of town and you've got all kinds of huge fields of refineries and and every and chemical plants and all these other things that are running these systems. Um, and a lot of smart people driving them. The thing about this is, to your point early on, where you started off with is, yeah, it's been left behind. Uh, we're still catching up, but a lot of good efforts happening. Um, in my mind, it's just a huge opportunity. Yes, it's been left behind, but that's the opportunity. Like if you're looking for a career in cyber and you want to do something like this, this is a great long-term uh, opportunity to do well in your career and do something important for the community. You know, I always use that likeness of saying, hey, your email server goes down, who cares? But if you blow up a pipeline and somebody gets hurt, mm, that's bad. That's really bad. Um, and people do care. So, and it's not just that, it's the trickle effects of any of those things. Like we saw with Colonial Pipeline and what's happened on the East Coast. But so we need to staff this up. Um, and it's one of those things as you catch more flies with honey, that's the way we do it. We create a great environment where they want to be. This is also with USICON is, has born another day-long conference we're about to launch called uh, OTSECCON, so OTSECCON, that we're planning to do at the end of April. Um, and try to bring those owner operators to the table along with our cyber experts to have the conversation because we're still dealing with the differences between IT and OT and we want to make it collaborative, not adversarial. Um, this isn't about protecting my fiefdom or, or not letting those guys into my environment or um, thou shalt do this from the cyber perspective. We want people to collaborate. I want the cyber folks to understand this is how these systems work. Right. These are what these plan engineers do every day. Right. So so understand what that means to them and vice versa. Sam, uh, Houston, security, OT, uh, community. Thanks for your time. That's Mark Urban joined by Drago Strategic Accounts Director Sam Van Ryder. You can learn more about the Drago's Community Defense Program, which provides free access to Drago's OT cybersecurity technology for qualified utility providers to better protect their communities from potentially destructive attacks. Find out all about it on the Dragos website. (music) 
And that's Control Loop, brought to you by the Cyberwire and powered by Dragos. For links to all of today's stories, check out our show notes at thecyberwire.com. Sound design for this show is done by Elliot Peltzman with mixing by Trey Hester. Our senior producer is Jennifer Iben. Our Dragos producers are Joanne Roche, Mark Urban, and Montserrat Thomason. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here next time. We'll be right back.